Welcome to the Diode. My name is Simon Lacey. Tonight we're going to start a multi-part series known as Haas. It takes place on the planet of Haasenine, in the city of Huntero mostly. Enjoy. Can you hook it around the waist? Chief Costello shouted to the gurneyman. The smaller man in the denim trousers worked the rod like an old sailor. The snow was falling gently around the concrete-lined river. The department had received a call at five in the morning that a corpse had been spotted in the Hooper's Dam. The gurneyman was using a large pole with a hook at the end of it, trying to snag the near-frozen corpse that kept bobbing below the surface. Jenna covered her face with a rag as she watched the stiff, bloated corpse tip and turn in the water. I think I got it, tersely shouted the gurneyman as he yanked at the hook. A large chunky flap peeled off the mottled corpse and sent the body head over heels in the water. Why couldn't this have happened further up, Jenna's partner Maggie asked. Maggie was 62 years old with a short crop of red hair under a worn out green cap. Maggie had the strong cheekbones and sturdy build of a soldier from the Creation Wars. She was tired and listless these days, with a dull gray saturation in her eyes. She looked at the body precociously, as the gurneyman played it like an old crane game. The corpse was finally yanked out of the river with the assistance of two more gurneymen. Screams of the high road bridges above the police entourage emanated the whine of small bikes and scooters as regular traffic passed overhead. The town of Huntero was built into a narrow canyon on the Fletcher River in the planet Hassanine. The steep valley of Huntero was around 22 kilometers long and a kilometer wide through the thick of it. The river Fletcher, which ran through the center of the canyon, flowed from the Great Grava Basin, where it soaked into the rocks and crevices of the large frozen lake. At the great quartzite bedrock level on the northeast side, the underground rivers and springs converged and have eroded away the rocks, creating a narrow canyon that the city is now built in. On the northeast side, the River Fletcher drops down a short waterfall at the shallowest point in the city and continues through Huntero, bobbing and dropping rapidly in spurts that slowly widen the canyon more and more. At the end of the canyon, on the southwest side of Huntero, is a small pool known as Fletcher's Pond, where the water drains through the porous rock into a large underground lake, abruptly ending the canyon in a large bowl. Jenna studied the immaculately dressed blob as it laid on the sidewalk. It had been bobbling around in the water for hours. The skin was bulbous and gray. The eyes had been swollen over to look like two thin lines. Look, Jenna said. He was wearing a watch. You can see the abrasions and the slight indentation before it broke off his wrist. Jenna stood up and looked around the snowy chasm of a city. A small group of spectators had developed on a pedestrian bridge above the concrete canal. Several police officers were attempting to usher them along as they took pictures and pointed at the fat husk. Jenna looked down at the seam and spoke to Officer Daniels. One of the rivers strained from here to the pond. Let me know what you find. Anything he could have been wearing, anything that might have fallen off. We need witnesses too. Check Standish, see if anyone saw anything. Jenna turned and began walking upstream, scouring the area. She scribbled some notes down in her old flip pad 
The snow crunched under her boots as she walked along the rampart next to the canal. Maggie followed after her. What do you think? Maggie asked. I can't tell yet. Dinner replied lost in thought. She pulled out a pack of cigarettes and tamped one out, rich in tar and menthol. Jenna inhaled deeply. The permanent lines of a lifetime smoker creased in fulfillment. She looked up the city at the diverse dispersion of bridges crossing the canyon. Where they stood, the canyon was over 500 meters deep, and the random bridges spanned the void all the way up. Her corpse may have simply fallen. Jenna's eyes were dark and sharp. She had dirty brown hair and a tight bun that hadn't been washed in several days, and crooked yellow teeth that were often pulled into a wry smile. Jenna was 47 and had been a detective for the Hunter Police Department for 16 years. Her and Maggie walked up the rampart following the river line to the elevation where the river surface froze. An hour later, the mystery of who the bloated man was was solved. It came come from the far northeast, in the wealthy side of town near the waterfall. Apparently, Mr. Gilder, a local wealthy businessman, had gone out the night before and hadn't come home that evening. Maggie and Jenna arrived at the door of the Gilder Manor in the far northeast at 8.30 in the morning. In the narrow canyon of the northeast, large stone fronts of houses stood proud of the rock and burrowed deep within the stone walls. The Gilder's house entrance had a small parking lot constructed outside of its doors. Up here, they were only 40 meters below the rim of the canyon. The air was cold and thin as the snow stuck to the surfaces. The entrance to the building looked like a large cathedral with gray stone columns and large ornate brass doors that had weathered with time. The waterfall was quite visible from the entrance of the manor, and it made a whooshing noise as Maggie thumped on the door. An ancient repurposed XT-22 answered the door. Come in, detectives. The inside of the cave castle was warm and glowing, decorated in an ancient style of wealth with accents of gold and deep auburn. Two staircases ran the outside of the entry room leading back into the mansion. Jenna saw Mrs. Gilder descending in all black, with a veil covering her makeup-smeared face. Two small children, chasing a small mechanical droid, ran through the entry hall and out a side room. Jenna coughed into her elbow and shook Miss Gilder's hand. The three of them sat around a small round table in the small rough rock room deep inside the cavern house. Small Edison bulbs hung sporadically around the room, giving it a cozy feeling. Through a pane of glass behind them, an underground garden in a brace of white light was visible. The three drank Kurat, a root left behind from the settlers that was a very mild opiate and was now the morning tea of the upper class. The two detectives sat nondiscriminately at the table. The upper class mansions were still an object of respite for many in Hunterow. Old Mrs. Gilder was moping to herself in sporadic heavy sobs. I just don't know what to do with myself, Mrs. Gilder finally said. The woman was in her early 70s and appeared frail to the point of feeble. Jenna could hear the small grandchildren thumping around the house somewhere in the background. He was out at a banquet last night and said he'd be home late, she trailed off. With who? Maggie inquired, studying Miss Gilder's body language. Oh, I believe he said it was a small gathering at the new Frung Pipeline in the central north. Do you know what time he left home? Jenna asked, sipping her tea. Maggie stared around the room absently. Would you stop that? I see you eyeing my silverware. Mrs. Gilder shouted at Maggie. Maggie's eyes changed to a wet, intense stare of anger at the old woman. 
Excuse me? She said, can you repeat that? Please go outside, Maggie, Jenna asked politely as she could. Maggie lingered for a moment before she turned and stooped under the low arch to leave the room. Jenna heard the XT-22 escort her out. Jenna sighed and slumped back into the chair. Mind if I smoke? Jenna asked, already shaking the small box of cigarettes. The old woman looked flustered but didn't say anything. Jenna lit the cigarette and inhaled deeply. So what time did your husband leave last night? Jenna asked, expelling a small lingering cloud. I believe around eight. Was he with anyone? Jenna's gaze returned to studying the old woman. Some friends, I think. Mr. Frung. Where was the banquet? Oh, dearie, I don't know. He goes to these things all the time. A girl just learns to tune them out. Mother, are you smoking again? Interrupted a middle-aged man-boy coming into the room. He saw Jenna with the cigarette in her head. Oh, I'm sorry, Inspector. Can you please put that out? There's children around the house. Jenna took a last drag and carefully dropped the cigarette in the small pool remaining at the bottom of her teacup. Sorry, Jenna said, swiveling in her chair. And you are? Philip Gilder, he said with a minute bow. My father was the one you fished out of the river this morning. You don't seem too shaken up about it, Jenna replied. I mean, not terribly. Father never spent too much time with his children. I doubt it will be much different than before. How could you say that, Philip? Mrs. Gilder shook. He was your father. He loved you with all of his heart. Do I have to stay, or may I be excused? Philip said to Jenna. You can go, but I'll have some questions, and I'll want to talk to you sometime later. Of course, Philip said as he excused himself from the room. Mrs. Gilder was in tears, rubbing makeup away from her eyes with a napkin on the table. Jenna retrieved the cigarette from her teacup, ripped the wet tip off it, and relit it. Mrs. Gilder didn't even seem to notice it was back in the detective's mouth when she recovered from sobbing. Well, as I said, I believe he was with Mr. Frung. He'll know more than me. A few last things, Mrs. Gilder, Jenna said coolly. Do you think it was an accident? Mrs. Gilder looked surprised. I, I, she stuttered. I don't know. I haven't even considered that it wasn't. Would anyone want your husband dead? Oh, please, child, we're in Hunterow. A thousand people wouldn't want my husband dead. Even the young ones want us dead these days. Well, thank you for your time, Mrs. Gilder. I'll see myself out. Take care of yourself and give me a call if you think of anything. Jenna walked out of the room and through the golden entry lobby. She left the warm glow of the house, through the large clad doors, and to be snipped at by the cold air outside. The sky was almost always gray in Hunterow, as specks of snow gently tumbled down. Up here in the northeast, the snow grew thicker on the sidewalks than down in central Hunterow. It was up around the woman's ankles. A young boy was shoveling the snow off the brick-paved path and dumping it over the handrails onto the frozen canal below. Jenna tightened her wool navy blue jacket around her neck. That fucking bitch, Maggie said quietly, staring out as she flicked a button to the canal. The nerve of her. I know, Maggie, Jenna said to her partner. You know how it is up here. The two walked down the brick sidewalk. It gently descended with a step down here and two steps there mostly staying level as it followed the canyon wall. As they walked, the river dropped further and further below them, as houses and developments occupied the space under the sidewalk. Narrow roads and thin bridges strung between the canyon walls could be seen fading into the haze of the snowfall further southwest. What do you think? Maggie asked as the two women walked through the snow. I think she's a weak old woman failing from malnutrition. 
I think she paints her husband in a golden light. I also think she knows more than she's letting on. They all do, Maggie said, obviously. Her cold nose running slightly. They always do. The view became truly spectacular up here on the high-rise. The city was opaque with snow particles. The faint sound of the street sweepers and small motor engines echoed up from the valley below. The two women stepped and entered a cot house to stimulate their minds. quick, quicker than any other he'd seen in a while. He leaped and swung over a handrail and dropped down a level onto the rampart below. Jerome followed him, grabbing at the handrail and dropping down about ten feet onto the walkway below. The boy was already sprinting ahead. Jerome had installed stubby little nails at the bottom of his sneakers around four months ago, when he fell on his face trying to run on the slippery walkways. To Jerome's right was apartment doors of the Standish apartment complex. To his left was the open chasm of the city, stretching downwards and out. Jerome sprinted fast with his shoes emanating a small clicking noise. A middle-aged woman was coming out of her apartment and Jerome slammed into her. You fucking youth! The woman shouted, I'm calling the police! The young man in front of Jerome swung left, over the handrail to dangle from it, hanging out over the space of the city. Just as Jerome was approaching, the other boy swung himself inward into the level below Jerome. Jerome looked out over the handrail with a pit in his gut. He was around 60 meters above where the canyon started to curve out towards the river. Fuck that. Jerome ran along and found a staircase and began bounding down a flight. He came out onto the level below to see the other young man hobbling. The boy was holding his knee and looked surprised to see Jerome. Cease! He held out his hand. She's yours! But it was pointless. Jerome tackled the other boy to the ground and began wailing on his face. He heard the crack of his nose as a pop of blood sprayed out. With each hit, Jerome bounced the boy's head into the concrete floor. Once the boy was a bloodied, groggy mess, Jerome began to dig through his clothes and pulled out a small, clasped container and some cash. The boy's eyes wandered off into space as he breathed slowly with blood streaming from his nose. Jerome pocketed the small container and walked away from the writhing boy. A man came out of the apartment behind Jerome. Hey, you! He shouted. The man ran to aid the wallowing boy on the pathway. Did you get it? The other kids asked Jerome as he approached them. They were waiting by a wide staircase on a backside courtyard in the lower west side of Hunter Road. I got it. Jerome smiled as he brandished the small case. Corruption! The other kids shouted in approval. Jerome opened the small case. It looked like most of the pills were still in there. The young man Jerome had just beaten to a pulp was a thug from Dimitri's crew, who had just shaken down one of Jerome's younger boys. Jerome was 17 years old and attended Philemon High School when he decided to go. Jerome and nine of his close-ish friends dealt ketamine and opioids to anyone who knew them and had the credit. Jerome's best friend was a boy named Brendan. He was a tall, lanky ginger with a shy misdemeanor. He didn't speak much, except when Jerome and Brendan were alone. Brendan's father was a junkie and beat the boy as a child. Brendan hated his father and never knew his mother. He rarely went home and often crashed at Jerome's dad's house, or his fort by the pond. Jerome knew both of his parents, however he rarely saw his mother anymore after the divorce. 
Jerome's dad was busy, understanding, but also harsh at times. He ran a deli on the Upper 23rd in the southeast. As a side note, Huntero runs northeast to southwest. Upper refers to the northwest wall of the city. Lower refers to the opposite wall, the southeast wall. Additionally, the levels of Huntero count down. The highest level is the first level. As the canyon gets deeper and deeper, more and more levels appear. That's all. It didn't do great, but it managed to pay the rent for them. Jerome's father would come home late, sometimes stinking of booze, and often left quite early in the morning. Alright, Tom and Hazel, take these to Jerry's class on the lower 25th. Jerome handed some pills to Tom. The two walked across the wide bridge that extended out from the courtyard across the river. The crew set out several collectors. One was a collector named Bobby, who stands near the corner of the courtyard. He would wait. If anyone handed him money, he would go to Ricky and exchange the cash for drugs, and then head back to the man who would wait at the corner. Ricky would hang in a central location with two other boys and would feed several collectors at nearby intersections. This way the drugs would stay out of sight and protected while they dealt, and the collectors can keep watch for squads and keep the crew out of jail. The trouble was transporting the large batches. This is what happened this morning when Bobby had been mugged. The crew sold all 23 of their pills. It was Saturday, and people were looking for drugs to party. Jerome gave everyone a cut of their profits and kept the majority to buy more drugs later. After hanging out and chatting for a while, the crew began to disperse around 5 o'clock. Jerome said goodbye to Brendan and began to walk up to his dad's deli shop. He was walking on the upper 25th sidewalk. Small storefronts and rundown buildings jutted in and out of the wide sidewalk he was on. On the 25th, the grade of the canyon wall was shallow enough that buildings were constructed out rather than carved into the canyon walls. On the 26th level, one level below and more central to the river, ran one of the major roads that curved up through the stories as it ran northeast parallel to the river. Jerome listened to the whine of small Vespas and the occasional car roll by. Hey. Cooley spoke a voice right next to him. There were three boys, standing in a dank alley. The central boy was Dimitri, large, pale, and hateful. Jerome panicked too late. The boys grabbed him and dragged him down the wet alley as he screamed. They beat the piss out of him and left him in a soggy pile of old cardboard. Dimitri took the money out of his pockets. Thanks for the hard work. Jerome lay broken and sore for several more minutes in the pile of saturated cardboard as snow flitted down and melted on his sore, bruised face. He eventually tried to upright himself. His left eye was swollen over, and he could taste the blood as the stink of iron and trash mixed in his nose. Drone dragged himself to the pathway, where a portly woman carrying groceries saw the young man. Oh my god, what happened? She looked down at the boy's abstract face and heard his haggard breathing. She banged on the cafe window next to them. Call a paramedic!
Creation Wars, also known as the Oppression Wars, was a time of turmoil on the northern hemisphere of Haas. There were several crag cities decorating the otherwise smooth surface of the planet. An oligarchy ruled several major cities. They had speckled their nobilities throughout the chasms. With their superior technology and increased resources, they had suppressed the lower classes into slavery. Most humans, apart from the nobility, were considered a form of indentured servant, but the mungers, as they were called by the aristocrats, were treated as disposable. Mungers was a slur for the stocky pale men and women that had red hair all over their body. For over 200 years, mungers were shackled and enslaved, driven to death from starvation and infection. It was the mungers who started the creation wars. It was said that in a neighboring city several thousand kilometers away, a young woman named Creedle caved in a slave driver's head with her forehead. The massive woman had then broken her shackles and began to peel the slave drivers limb from limb. She was run down by the authorities and driven onto a spit, but the town slaves were so inspired by the woman's raw power. In a few short days, it had sparked a massive rebellion. Word spread over the eleven-odd towns in the northern hemisphere of Haas, and all the slaves began to revolt. Maggie had grown up among her during the Creation Wars. They were long, dark, and dirty. Hunterow, a town 22 kilometers long with a population of over 60,000, was a war zone. Starvation was immense. The Overlord's guns and Secret Service were daft and ruthless. Months would go by with only a death or two, as each side would barricade more and more. Suddenly, a day would come when one side would breach the other and hundreds would die from gases, shrapnel, or in turn, long bouts of infection. It was Tilbuck Humphrey, a nobleman and overlord that was the first to demand peace in Hunterow. He laid down his weapons and erected a large pale yellow flag. He walked down the 18th level and stood in the middle of the Ramsgate Bridge, waving a large flag. The canyon stood silent for a moment. It only took 14 seconds before a homemade rebar bolt impaled his chest, sending the foolish man spinning and drenching the pale flag with a deep crimson. It was two years later that the leaders met in a conference, back on the very same bridge to discuss terms of peace. The late Henry Trunk O'Connor led the resistance's terms and would only take civil equality as an option. Trunk was covered in scars, broken bones, and was short a couple fingers. He stood 5 foot 11, weighing 260 pounds of muscle. The man was said to be a second cousin of Creedle, broad and massive. The negotiations took two weeks and resulted in four casualties. The thousands of people on either side stood and waited. Finally, it was agreed that an indentured servitude would be abolished and equality would come forth. The nobility were allowed to keep up to 60% of their gained wealth and spend the rest into municipal repair and services. Maggie was 14 when the wars ended, and very little remains of them today. Down by Fletcher's Pond, there is a bronze statue of Trunk, crushing one of the nobility's head that he killed during the week-long negotiations. Below it it reads, When the power of class defies you, crush the power of class.
So what are you thinking? Maggie asked. She had a swollen cheek full of cotton in her mouth. She chewed the stuff like a rabbit. Well, we have a dead man, wealthy, who looks like he just opened a new hydraulic pipeline. We have a forgetful wife and a possibly jealous son. Do you think it was suicide? Maybe, Jenna responded. Murder? Maggie asked. Maybe too. It could also be an accident. Jenna thought carefully. We need to build a profile of Gilder, what he's doing, what he was like. The two detectives descended from the upper ramparts of the upper northeast down to the lower third where the scooters were parked. The stairway had been plastered with posters for concerts, sales, and missing children in the neighborhood. The scooters were parked in a small round open lot that gently bridged down over the lower fifth. Jenna kicked her scooter to life and sped off. Riding around Hunterow was like sailing on the back of some enormous multi-headed snake. The roads went up and down levels smoothly and cut across the canyon from one side to the other. There were no lanes or controlled intersections, just smooth rounded corners, off ramps, and an unspoken cultural way to drive. Most people stuck to the left wherever they were going, but not always. While you were driving in Hunterow, you had to be fast and graceful, and sometimes angry. The roads were heated from several geothermal springs that were pumped into the base of the roadways. These large pipelines of hot water would come up and down in the thick concrete pillars and busts that supported the roadways. While not having ice on them, they would occasionally flood in spots. Several of the richer folk also rode around in small boxy tank quads. They could squeeze four or five people into these small armored quads, but it created a clot of scooters around them wherever they went. Jenna and Maggie were heading to the North Central Police Station, the Upper Central Police Station. They took the Lower Fifth Bypass over the bridge. The wind whistled as snow blew around Jenna's goggles. The sound of her small engine rattled beneath her as she followed at pace in the pack of small motors. The slick wet road made a ripping noise as her bike sped across the heated asphalt. The North Fifth Bridge was always a fun ride for Jenna. It was barely five meters wide, and she could look over 120 meters down to the thawing river below. Pedestrians walked on a neighboring bridge that connected the lower fifth to the upper fourth. Jenna could see couples holding hands and beggars with a mountain of packs behind them. Growing up in Hunterow, most people didn't develop vertigo, and looking out over the vast precipices on stringy bridges was commonplace. Occasionally someone would fall to their demise, but not as often as you'd think. Jenna merged onto the upper fifth and bobbed through a crowded intersection of scooters and turned left to go southwest. The road plummeted a level on a smooth bulge to the sixth. The sixth roadway was sheltered from above and had a wide walkway next to it. Storefronts and small craft shops and lunch tables were visible behind the busy throng of ethnic pedestrians. Jenna took a left exit ramp, putting her back into the falling snow. The ramp was very narrow and gently climbed up to the upper fourth. It merged with a small road that led straight to the North Central Police Station. Jenna pulled her plump scooter up next to a diverse collection of scooters outside the station that ranged from chunky powerhouses to lightweight foldable scooters. Maggie buzzed up behind Jenna. The police station was in a regular bustle this morning. The North Central beat. There were no weapons in the whole facility and it consisted of beat cops who patrolled and investigated crimes and murders to keep the peace in Hunterow. The South Central Police Station was much smaller and much, much different from the North. 
Chief Costello was standing over a desk with Dr. Cutley. The two were gleaning over a document and several x-rays. What have you got? Jenna asked Chief Costello. The large man barely looked up from the x-rays. His hair was combed back and was dark with hints of gray. The man had a face like a shovel, with bushy eyebrows and a cigarette that lived between his lips. It's interesting, the chief replied. Why don't you tell her, Evan? Dr. Evan Cutley was in his fifties and was the mortician at the police station. He had a shaved head and thin-rimmed glasses. His voice was tinny and articulate. Yes, so I was going through the Bucky's tissues. Who? Jenna asked. Mr. Gilder. Anyway, he didn't die from drowning. What do you mean? Was it impact, then? Oh, he definitely had impact, but it wasn't that either. He died of asphyxiation prior to entering the river. What do you mean, like he was choked out? Maggie asked. It's inconclusive. His body is too decayed to see what might have happened. Hmm. What'd you girls find? Chief Costello asked them. Nothing concrete, Maggie replied. We have a racist old lady who we suspect is hiding something, and a son who didn't seem very impacted. We know he was at the gala last night in the new Frung installation. Apparently he never came back. Costello furrowed his brow into a comfortable crease. If it's asphyxiation, let's assume it's murder for the time being. Let's find out who or why. We're going to go interview Mr. Frung. Apparently he was with him last night. Maggie said, good, Chief Costello said dismissively. The Frung structure was a large building several kilometers northeast of the police station. It was bulky and decisive looking. It was designed in a very modernistic fashion. Mr. Frung was an energy affiliate and owned a number of dams and hydroelectric spring pipelines in Hunterow. Mr. Frung was supposedly an everyday working man, and Jenna thought he'd try his office first. I'm so sorry to hear that, Mr. Frung said from behind a large, ornate, thick glass desk. I saw him just last night at the banquet. When did you last see him there? Maggie asked. The office was a tight fit and high up with windows that looked down on large rooms filled with wet brown piping. The office was well lit, but the large industrial rooms below were mostly lit with massive trellised windows. He was heading home around one in the morning, I think. He said he was tired, had seen enough of these things recently. Maggie studied the tall man. He was thin and standing over six feet. He had hard cheekbones and pale eyes. He had a scar on his upper left forehead that looked like it was from his childhood. He also wore thin black gloves. That was typical of some people in Hunter His stare was intense, but his voice was kind and understanding. What sort of things did Mr. Gilder do in his spare time? Maggie asked. He hunted on the plains fairly regularly. I know he'd go up to the surface with a quad and hunt the rays up there. Would he go with anyone? Not usually. I think he was kind of alone most of the time. Look, to be honest with you, I only knew Mr. Gilder because it was proper. I didn't know very much apart from what he said at the galas. Now, if you ladies would be so kind, I am running a company here. Calm down, Mr. Frum. We just want to get to the bottom of this. I am calm, but please. Maggie asked directly, Is there any reason anyone would want to kill Mr. Gilder? Of course there is, he said, giving her the look like, Really? But none of them very logical. That's not a helpful answer, Maggie said. 
What do you want? He asked, starting to lose his patience. Look, Mr. Frunk. No, you look. Unless you have a warrant, I'm going to ask you to leave already. Okay, Maggie said calmly. Look, we're just looking for cooperation. I think I have cooperated. Mr. Frung, Maggie said, interrupting again. Please, you have to go. I've had enough of this interruption. You two could work on some manners next time. Mr. Frung stood up, and the conversation was over. The two got back outside. What was that all about? Maggie asked. I don't know, Jenna replied ruefully. Let's see if we can find out who was at the gala last night. Jerome vaguely remembered the ambulance carriage showing up and strapping him into the wagon that was towed behind the large bike. He woke in Gruber's Hospital, in the southeast. It was a dimly lit, worn-out hole in the wall that was reconstructed after the war. Jerome opened his eyes and saw a letter from his father on the bedside table. He shifted his weight on the uncomfortable metal pan that emanated a foul odor. "'Come round, have you?' a lively middle-aged nurse came into the room. She was skinny and pale with sunken cheeks. She had a lattice of finely cut wrinkles etched into her face. She checked on the machines Jerome had been plugged into. You took quite a scolding, she said in a slight accent. What day is it? Jerome asked the nurse. It's Tuesday. The officers came in here yesterday for you, but I told them you were out cold. They're going to want to talk to you soon. Two and a half days had gone by since Dimitri had pulverized him. He couldn't explain this to the squads. Jerome beat that boy on the same day. Yeah, Jerome replied. You know when they're coming back? Nah, the nurse said, straightening up the sheets. Up you get. She scooped up the bedpan out from underneath Jerome. You won't be needing this no more. Bathroom's two doors down on the right. She saw herself out the door. The clock on the wall read 1532. In a half hour, the beat cops would all go home after work. And so would most of the nurses. Official tax document. Mr. Edgar Humphreys' readouts. Municipal taxes, 8%. Government taxes, 4%. Medical taxes, 10%. Oxygen taxes, 30%. Please comply to your earliest regard. Oxygen taxes. A flat rate across the board for every working employee in Hunt Row. Oxygen taxes ran at 15% of your income and 15% for each dependent that you claimed. If you didn't work, it was a stiff 800 HCs a month per dependent. Haas is a barren rocky planet with high winds and a fine cold snow on its surface. When the planet was originally colonized, it was thought to have enough gravity to hold an atmosphere. 
After around 500 years, 88% of the atmosphere had dissipated into space. The planet now holds a thin coat of an atmospheric layer with 2% of what ozone used to exist on it. The planet's southern hemisphere, and around half of the northern hemisphere, is covered by a large body of water known as the Hassanine Ocean. This thin, slightly sulfuric, briny ocean gives Haas a continual blanket of greasy clouds since the atmosphere was developed. Where the ocean sprays and leaks filter through rocks and into freshwater lakes and into springs. This is what allows for sustainable life on Haas. Part of the electricity that is harvested off the city dams and hydroelectric springs gets funneled into a special voltaic tank. Here, the electricity harvested from the dams splits the water into hydrogen and oxygen and disperses it into the small chasm city. Due to the heavy nature of oxygen, the gas sits in the basins of these cities before it eventually gets blown out into the atmosphere. Here, it meets its lost last remaining partners before they go flying into space, hydrogen. In the thin exterior atmosphere, the oxygen and hydrogen rebond, turning back into clouds and snow. This is why the only human life you can find on Haas exists in these small cracks on the surface of the planet. Humans thrive here, where they have learned to survive. Individuals can go out onto the plains, where the air is thinner, but it requires an oxygen tank, and one can only spend a limited amount of time before the nitrogen in their blood begins to expand. Families on Haas are taxed heavily to run the large oxygen refineries, and the money goes straight into the people who built the refineries, continuing the caste cycle that was meant to be broken in the creation wars. Maggie had to twist a young man's arm at the end of the front installation to get the A-list of the attendants at the gala, but they had it. The two women sat at a gathering of picnic tables that had been placed on the Rams Bridge. It was the same bridge that the foolish man had been laid out by a well-shot piece of rebar 65 years earlier. Ramsgate Bridge was a wide pedestrian bridge that connected the 18th levels of the walkways in central Hunterow, just above the river. It was a wide stone bridge that was tiled with rough cream-colored ceramic tiles. It was Bastillion Day, a small holiday celebrating Henry Bastillion, one of the old governors of Hunterow. Bastillion was a nomad that wandered the Great Plains when they were wanderable and stumbled into the shabby town of Hunterow. The man had taken a very boisterous campaign, leading Hunterow into a golden age of industrialization. Bastillion died when he was 48 from an assassin from Greenwall, a town around 4,200 kilometers away. Rumor had it that the assassin was a Gen X-3 symbiote that had been given a rogue operation to kill Bastillion. The assassin was interrogated for three days before he disappeared. To this day, Henry Bastillion is viewed as a martyr and the industrial savior of Hunterow. And every year, on Q255, a small group of people come down to the bridges and throw bits of metal and memorabilia into the river. Jenna thought it was a bunch of ox shit and wished people would stop polluting the goddamn river with trash. She lit up a cigarette and squinted at the sentimental, warm-hearted people across the bridge from her. She watched families and strangers looking longingly and making wishes as they watched litter fall into the cold, rushing water below. She wondered what it was about traditions that frustrated her so much. Maybe it was the fact that it made no sense. 
We got Hooper, Gilder, Trexen, Long, Doyle, Creamer, Hilltop, Farron, Uncton, Schweizer, Frung, and Locke, it looks like. Maggie said, I could see that, Jenna replied. It's not a very big banquet, if you ask me. I agree. Mm, let's sleep on a Megs. It was getting late. They had woken up early to fish the corpse out of the river this morning. Jenna snorted as she stood. She patted Maggie on the shoulder. Get some rest. I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Jenna, Maggie said, as she stayed seated eyeing the list. The hydrogen lights began to pop up around town, decorating Hunter in small hot white lights. Jenna walked down the ram's bridge with a firm saunter. She was a lean woman with a large warm jacket and tight-fitting pants. She didn't smile much anymore. A child holding a slightly rusted lug nut was walking past her with a huge grin on his face. Throw that in the river and I'll toss you off, Jenna said to the kid as she walked away, taking a pull off her cigarette. The child stared back and started to cry as his parents came running over to console him. Jenna lived in the Bakken Apartments, on the lower side, around two kilometers southeast of the Ramsgate. It started on the 20th level and went up to around the 8th. Her apartment was small and cluttered. She had a thick burgundy rug that had been the victim of several forgotten cigarettes. Jenna's dad had been a freedom fighter as she was growing up and had always taught her to be slightly paranoid. As a result, Jenna was slightly paranoid. Being a smaller, slimmer woman, she knew she didn't stand a great chance in a fair fight so she had to be daft. Every night, she set her father's 45-pound bolt thrower up as a trap behind her door in case someone tried to break in. And in all the years she had been in a detective, it had never gone off until tonight. Jenna woke to the sound of the bolt thrower exploding her door into a hundred pieces. It was three o'clock in the morning. Jenna was shaking, trying to understand what was going on. Her room was black, and there was no noise. She grabbed the tire iron she kept under her bed and went to the door. Gently jarring the door, she peered into her living room. Her apartment was black, apart from the silhouette of the bolt thrower standing in its mounted frame in a splintered doorway. Heron, the third moon, was shining brightly, illuminating the damage that had been done. Jenna tried to control her breathing, but was stifling it, turning it into short, sharp gasps. She could hear her heart pounding in her ears as she strained to listen to the room outside of her bedroom. Did she see something? Did the door just move? She stood perfectly still. She began to hear muffled sounds of people from the apartment above. The commotion must have woken them up as well. Several minutes passed before Jenna stepped out of her room. She was in her underwear, holding the tire iron in both hands. She gingerly stepped around the furniture like a stray cat. The bolt thrower steamed and hissed with hot oil. Her door was shattered but pieces still stuck together with friction. She hit it a few times with the tire iron to knock it completely down. Outside her apartment was a teenage boy with a piece of rebar through his dead body, anchoring him to the concrete handrail. Oh my God, Jenna shouted, panicking. A large fillet knife sat in a growing pool of blood around him. Oh my God, Jenna dropped the tire iron and put her hands to her face as she began to shake more. She ran to the phone and dialed the police. Two bead cops, Walters and Gunn, showed up in about eight minutes, followed closely by two paramedics. Walters sat with Jenna, who was wrapped in a blanket. The two paramedics outside were using all their strength to try and yank the piece of rebar out of the boy. 
Eventually, they just slid the boy off the piece of rebar and left the metal there for cleanup to take care of. After the commotion, Jenna called Maggie, waking her up and asked to stay at her place. It was 4.30 in the morning when Jenna fell back asleep on Maggie's couch. The boy's name was Brendan Foles, Maggie told Jenna after she had come to get coffee at the police station. Jenna had come in late, a kid down at Philemont High School. Brendan Foles, Jenna thought. That name sounds familiar. She couldn't remember why. Kid's dead, but he's got this. Maggie slid a picture over to Jenna. It was a diamond-shaped tattoo on his neck. Gang sign? I think so. Haven't seen it before, however. Maggie replied. Hmm. So there's a gala. Mr. Gilder goes home that night, but instead ends up choked out in a river. We meet a few people, get a list, and suddenly, a kid is trying to kill me with a fillet knife. Mr. Sarah Novold, or Saren, was the station's tech worker. He was a tribute to a time of style. He wore thick-rimmed glasses and slicked his hair back. He was in his late thirties, but had a slightly receding hairline. Saren smoked non-stop, and as a result, had been moved into his own special office that had a vent out the back of it in the station. He also took to wearing a lab coat over top of his tailored outfits a lot of the time. Jenna walked into the room as a dim plume of smoke spilled out of the glass office. Oh, hey, Jenna, Saren said excitedly, looking up from his computer. His desk was a cluttered mess with discs, old food boxes, a microscope, and papers. I heard you had a hot date last night. Jenna looked at him as if she were in no mood. Heard you really uh, swept him off his feet. Heard you uh, tried to stick around, eh? I heard that. Shut up. Saren snorted. What can I do for you? The Frung installation. Anything you can get. All right. Let's see what we got here. Frung. Mm, frung. Uh, here. Looks like they had a party two nights back, where old man Gilder was attending. The new Frung installation is one of the largest spring tributaries, it looks like. Mr. Edgar Frung had started building it over four years ago. Four years? How big is this thing? Jenna asked. Well, it's big, but not that big. Uh, looks like they ran into some trouble with resources and ran out of metal. Uh, things picked back up this year and they finished it off. What else have you got? Everyone at the party was an investor, it looks like. Like a private party. Thanks, sir. For sure. I'd ask you to go out with me, but I hear you're into younger guys. Saren smirked. Jenna slammed the door shut as she walked out of the room. We've got interviews, Jenna said to Maggie. Everyone at the party. Let's divide and conquer. Find out who might have a motive. The two women walked outside. The snow was coming down in small specks today and settling in dusty drifts off to the sides of the roads. Jenna kicked her scooter to life and took off towards the northeast side of town.
It was midnight when Jerome snuck out of the hospital and returned home. Jerome didn't have any identification on him, so the hospital police never found out who he was. His father, Kants and Merriweather, saw Jerome asleep on the couch in the morning when he left for work at the deli. Jerome had hot oatmeal for breakfast and rode his bike to school. The morning was brisk, as large flaky chunks of snow melted on the roads. Down here, in the southwestern side of Hunterow, less scooters populated the roads, and more people walked and rode bicycles to their destination. Jerome lived in the Standish Apartments, which were around three kilometers northeast of Fletcher's Pond, and on the upper side of the canyon. It was a slow, loping downhill ride to Philmont High School from Jerome's house, as he moseyed down, crossing back and forth over bridges, appreciating the fresh air. Philmont was next to Fletcher's Pond on the lower side of the canyon, and was a massive structure that jutted out from the rock wall like a large brick. Down here, the air was slightly warmer, and the Fletcher's River was wide and calmer than it was up the stream. The soft, chunky snow stuck in piles on all the ledges it could find. The Philmont Bridge was a pedestrian and vehicle bridge that connected across the river on the 26th level. Jerome could see down to the pond with the statue of Trunk out in front of it. The large barren walls behind Fletcher's Pond were always a relief for Jerome to see, something that hadn't been developed in Hunterow and just left to be enjoyed. Brendan met Jerome in homeroom. The two sat next to each other. Mr. Baker, their homeroom teacher, taught English, math, and social studies. The students would always return to their homeroom for those classes and then mix with the other students and teachers for their specialty classes. What happened? Brendan asked Jerome. Leave it, Jerome said. Fucking hell, it was Dimitri, wasn't it? I said, drop it, Bren. Fuck me, Brendan replied. Mr. Baker walked in. I see you've returned to us, Jerome, Mr. Baker said dryly. Mr. Baker was a 44-year-old closet homosexual. He was very clean and wore a button-down tie and sweater vest every day. Mr. Baker was dry and short-fused to the point of angry at times with his students. If the students didn't behave, they got the ruler, so no one spoke out of line in Mr. Baker's class. Uh, yes, Mr. Baker, just last night. I'm sorry to hear that. Today we're going to be going over algebraic equations. School was dull for the boys. They hated busy work and hated being cooped up for eight hours of the day. Finally, at 15 o'clock, the bell rang and another day of stifling indentured prison was over. Brendan caught up with Jerome outside of school. Where are you going? Brendan asked Jerome. Home, Bren. Oh, come on, hang out with me and my cuz, Brendan replied. Who, Billing? Yeah, man. Nah, man. Billing gives me the creeps, Jerome replied. Ah, oh, dude, he just got some salsa that'll ripen you right up. Nah, I'm good, man. Come on, man, Brendan pleaded. It'll make you feel right as rain. Rain being rare in Hunterow. Jerome paused. All right. Billing's apartment was four kilometers northeast of the boys' high school. On the way over, they stopped for some baked rolls and ox milk at their favorite bakery. The area Billings lived in was known as the Southwestern Village. It was a lattice of streets, awnings, shops, alleys, structures, apartments, and staircases on the lower side of the canyon. It was a patchwork of construction that made a minor eruption of structures and buildings in a bulge out from the canyon wall. Getting around the Southwestern Village was a bit like a three-dimensional maze that most people who grew up in the South knew the main tributaries of. The boys parked their bikes somewhere on the 22nd level, and followed up the staircases, Walden streets, and alleys to get to Billings' apartment. The apartment was tucked in the back of the village around the 14th level. An alleyway to an outdoor staircase led up to Billings' front door. Brendan rapped on the green metal door, 
Yeah. Hey, cuz, open up. There's a bit of grumbling, and Billings opened up the door. Billings had not gotten the red hair gene from Brendan's side of the family. He was short and stocky, with black stubble on his face and a dark green toque on his head. He looked to be in his late 20s and wore an outfit that had a Thrasher's logo on it. Go on in, Billings said, turning away and slumping back into his couch. Jerome noticed as he turned he saw a small diamond tattoo on his upper right neck. The Draken System, the promise of a bright tomorrow. Haas orbited the white dwarf Kraken. The Nova Rally Company began to terraform the planet Haas in the year of 24,520. At that point, Haas appeared to have promise, being located in an undeveloped part of the galaxy with an asteroid belt rich in materials. Terraforming Haas took 53 years on the planet before humans could begin landing on it and not having to wear a Gaussian stabilizer. It was marketed to lower-class families near Central as a solar system with promising future and a massive upside potential for economic wealth. Graken was 44 light-years from Central's nearest outpost system. From there, settlers would have to take a solar sail on an established transit system. 44 light-years was around 63 years on a solar. Needless to say, the Graken was known as a frontier system a system that was outside of Central and a newly terraformed planet. Terraformers, or pioneers as they were called by the companies that shipped them, were frozen like corn dogs for the majority of the trip, with two years at the end to wake up and retrain muscles. The Nova Rally Company began to sell off the surface of Haas like it was a meat raffle. Rogue investors and entrepreneurial miners saw the system as a long-term investment. They could always wait for their investment to mature. The average age of the top 5% in Central was nearing 600 years old. Large plants, surrounded by small neighborhoods, began to pop up on the surface of Haas, like a rapidly spreading infection. There were huge skyscrapers with orbital cast cannons that could launch and catch freighters from the middle atmosphere. It wasn't until year 350 that local scientists began to realize that the re-entry of the spacecrafts was changing. The atmosphere was slowly dissipating. Panicked by the turmoil, investors began to leave the system. The Nova Rally Company turned it in as an insurance write-off, and the deal was done. However, some people stayed, raised families on Haas, because it was home to them. They stayed and watched as friends and family left for the massive solars. They stayed amongst the ruins and abandoned cities. They stayed behind. 2,200 years have passed since the first settlers came down to land on Haas, and those few that stayed on the surface were the ancestors to the entire planet. There are relics from the time before that still remain, but have never been recreated. Quantum technologies and semi-sentient robots. These were machines that were made by machines that were made by machines, far beyond the craft of human. Haas has never re-established contact with a small cluster of solar systems known as Central, and barely anyone on Haas even knows that it still exists.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Diode. The Diode was written, read, composed, and produced by myself, Simon Lacey. Stay tuned for the next episode and the continuation of Haas.